because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this special live edition of Skullduggery. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And we are really pleased to have on this special edition of Skullduggery a special guest, Bob Woodward, author of Rage and My Old Boss. Bob, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. You're nice to invite me. <laughs> so, so much to talk about off your new book, which has such incredible material in it. Want to start out with some mega questions, and that is you've written sure. bestseller after bestseller about American presidents for decades now. In almost every case, those presidents have not come off looking better after you were through with them than uh, before you wrote the book. So... You know, my big question is, why on earth did Donald Trump agree to talk to you for this book and allow you to tape him? And to do it for nine hours, 19 interviews. Yes. I, I think it goes back to the first Trump book I did, which was Fear in 2018. He denounced it as fiction and said I was a democratic operative. and people close to him said, uh, oh, by the way, it's all true. And Trump regretted he had not talked to me for fear. People had not told him that I was knocking on the door, actually six doors to try to get to him. And uh, so he said, okay, I'll do it. And this was, the first interview was December 5th of last year. This is before the virus. Came and I was talking to him, asking about North Korea a great deal. But I went into the Oval Office, took out my tape recorder, my Olympus tape recorder. In fact, here one of them is. And uh, they're uh, very inexpensive. And I plunked it down on the Resolute desk and said, this is all on the record. I'm going to record it for a book to come out before the election. And he agreed each time uh, I called or he would, I had to carry one around in my pocket in my house here because he would call late at night. And I had another copy of the Olympus <laughs> tape recorder close to my bed, one down uh, in the kitchen because he would call at all hours unexpectedly. And I wanted to make sure I recorded it. Just to get inside his head, do you think he thought he was going to come off better by talking to you? Well, yes, certainly. And, and I mean, even two days ago, he said, oh, there are lots of good things in the book that I said, that he, Trump said. And I let him have his say. I think almost 20% of the book are quotes from him. And it was an extraordinary opportunity for me because I could prepare questions. 
I could uh, think about what was going on after George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minnesota. What That was May 25th. I could then ask about race relations. I could ask about the economy. I could ask about his approach to the presidency, his notion of its responsibility, and ask questions about the virus. And so he was a full participant in it. And uh, he was asked the other day on Fox News about it. And uh, he was asked directly, "Was this is this accurate? And he said, it's fine. It's okay. So it served the purposes of getting truth out about how he concealed his knowledge of the virus from the public, which I think is one of the most tragic, outrageous acts by a, a sitting president in maybe in history, because if he had been leveled with the American public, I think it's quite possible that uh, many, many deaths could have been prevented. And it would have been a simple task to do that. And he did not. And this, uh, so, this is a massive failure of presidential leadership. So, Bob, I wanted to pick up on precisely that point. That's the, the big bombshell in the book, is that that February 7th conversation in which he told you that the virus was very deadly, that it was five times as strenuous as the regular flu, that it, uh, he implied that it was highly contagious because it, it transmitted through the air. Uh, and yet for months, you know, he repeatedly downplayed it to the American people. Uh, he said it was actually just like the conventional flu, that it would disappear, that it would go away without a vaccine. So we've got a clip from Tuesday night's uh, ABC town hall in which a voter asks him about how he could be saying one thing privately to you and, a, and, and something diametrically opposed to the American people. So take a listen. And then on the other side, uh, we want to get your reaction to it. Sure. If you believe it's the president's responsibility to protect America, why would you downplay a pandemic that is known to disproportionately harm low-income families and minority communities? Yeah. Well, I didn't downplay it. I actually, in many ways, I upplayed it in terms of action. So what was going through your head when you heard that, other than coining the term upplayed, which I'm not sure I've ever heard? What does that say about Donald Trump? Well, it, it's the mixed message. And I mean, suppose you're a neutral voter, citizen of America, and trying to deal with the virus for your family. Do you send your children to school? What is the risk in all of this? Uh, it, is, it, it is so confusing. It makes you dizzy. And uh, this idea of upplane, I don't even think that's a word. Now it <laughs> will be in one of those slang dictionaries, but Trump, and I, I think overall the book shows he, he's lost his way, not just as president, but as a human being trying to assess what's real and what's unreal. And uh, his capacity to separate that is seriously, I mean, it's not a matter of, of question. There, there you are listening to this, mm -hmm. And uh, it is a tragedy, as you may know, at the end of the book, I, I was typing along the epilogue, and it just came out, as you know, in writing about what you're thinking and feel 
feeling, and I said, in totality, Trump is the wrong man for the job. And I realized what I was saying directly, and I consulted with my wife, Elsa, who um, Michael knows from uh, the Washington Post, my assistants, Evelyn Duffy, Steve Riley, my publisher, John Carp at Simon & Schuster. And I said, uh, what do you think? This is coming from, you know, it's a conclusion based on overwhelming evidence. And they said to me collectively, and this, this was such, uh, you, you learn a lot about yourself when you do these things. And they said, look, you're writing about truth. And that is the truth. And how are you going to duck the truth? And I've had people call me and say, if you had not said that, they would be all over me and say, wait a minute, you've got all of these particularly Republican senators and legislators who won't step up to their responsibility because, let's, I mean, I know these people. They understand. They know Trump is the wrong man for the job, but they will hide behind, oh, well, I'm not going to talk, I'm not sure, or I support him. And I was not willing to join that outrage crowd. This was an extraordinary thing for you to do, because in all of these books that you've written, all of the investigative reporting that you've done, uh, you've never come to a conclusion like this. I think earlier in the book, at some point, you say, beyond being a reporter, you were worried about the country. Well, yes, I, I have to, and I, I always uh, have been. There, there is a public health safety responsibility that I had. But at the same time, you can't duck what is an obvious conclusion. And it put it all together, which I attempt in this book. There are two pillars, I think, that are part of presidential responsibility. The first, I asked Trump in that first interview in the Oval Office, it was a very long interview, I think an hour and 14 minutes. And at the end, it's on page 49 of the transcript, just the simple question, what's the job of the president? And he said, to protect the people. That is job number one. Job number two is to tell the truth. And not just the truth, but a coherent truth. And the, the failure to do this saddens me as a citizen. I could put it all together in one book. And, uh, you know, as we were talking before we started here, there are just lots of parts of Trump world and the Trump story I was able to get in the course of 10 months. Bob, just picking up on this, you talked about what's the job of the president. And uh, as you know, there have been a lot of questions for you. What's the job of the reporter here? And whether you had an obligation to disclose to the public in real time that what the president was telling you privately was different than what he was saying publicly. Now, I get your point that you hadn't finished your reporting. You didn't know about the January 31 briefing in which Trump is told. January 28th. Yeah. January 28th. The January 28th. But you did know what he said on February 7th and how that was different than what he was saying publicly, that this is just like the flu and it's going to go away. Did you consider 
or consult with your team of advisors there about whether you should disclose that in real time before you were finished with the book. Okay, but but see here, I uh, you know this, Michael, so well, and both uh, Danny, you know this that when you you live your life in chronological order, but you don't report in chronological order. And on February 7th, I could bring you a stack that Steve Riley has compiled of me, for me, of February clips and the discussion of the virus. It's all in China. It's, it, it is a China story. And so in March, when the virus exploded, I knew that it was airborne, that people who didn't have the symptoms could spread it. And so so did the public. We had 30,000 new cases a day of the virus. I could not tell them anything in February because it, it, as far as I was concerned, it was about China. And in March, as you know, boom, it exploded. And everyone knew that. So I'm asking the question, you two know this as well as anyone. In the case of president or somebody you're looking at, what did he know? When did he know it? But how did he know it? And I said, okay, how did he learn this? I learned in May, as is shown in the book and the chronology and uh, in the tapes, uh, when I asked him on May 6th, do you remember this January 28th meeting? That's the, I begin the book that, what, that way. It's the key meeting where he's sitting there with his national security advisors in a top secret presidential daily brief meeting. And the virus comes up and Robert O'Brien steps up and says, Mr. President, this virus is going to be the biggest threat to your presidency. Then Matt Pottinger, the deputy who'd been like a, a he was a reporter. But in China, for seven years, he developed sources who told him that what, and and Pottinger told the president on January 28th, look, this is not going to be just a problem, a public health problem. This is going to be a pandemic. And Pottinger's sources in China who were authoritative that he had known going way back when he covered China and the SARS epidemic in 2003, they said, this is going to be a pandemic like the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which killed 675,000 people in this country. The president asked questions about it. It's the first part in the prologue of the book, and it's very clear. That's the pivotal meeting, and I did not learn about it until May. Again, May, the virus is exploding completely, and there's no story for me to do because I can write the book and lace together everything about, that uh, I discovered in my reporting, not just from Trump, but from other people who worked in the administration. So, I mean, just, you know, you guys, you guys do this stuff. and. I have a relationship with the Washington Post. I could have walked into the editor, Marty Barron, or 
Stephen Ginsburg, the national editor, who in a practical sense I work for and report to, and say, here, we've got something that we need to publish. And they would have, in March, when this would have been feasible, they would have said, wait a minute, that's in the paper every day. Everyone acknowledges that it goes through the air. But not, not that the president we know. was acknowledging. Pardon? Not that the president Pardon? was telling you privately, this is more serious, this is more deadly than the flu, when he's saying publicly he's talking it's about, the same Michael, thing. Michael, he's talking about China, as far as I'm concerned. See, the entree into this discussion, as I lay out in the book, is the night before Trump had talked to President Xi of China. And Trump put it all in the context of China and President Xi. And so I spent some time trying to find that transcript of the discussion that the two leaders had. And uh, I thought that was key. I finally got to a point where somebody, I was in the room with somebody who had the transcript. Well, you know, transcripts of presidential conversations are radioactive at that point. In fact, this is not in the book. Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, called me and said, you're trying to get a transcript of the president's discussion with a world leader. The lawyers in the White House are having a meltdown <laughs> that you're asking. You can't have this. And so I had to find out in the book, there's a laundered version of that. So many times I've walked into the office of the editor of the Post and saying, this is a story that needs to be in the paper. And uh, there was no opportunity to do that. But my God, I would have if I could save one life. But anyway, I've laid out the chronology. Issachar, it's good to know that even Bob Woodward can't get stories in the paper sometimes. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, I, it, it's not that I couldn't get it in the paper. No, no, I didn't I, think I, of it. I didn't, I didn't mean it yeah, in this case. You know, you guys know this, you know, the fires that burn in us as reporters are, let's get the truth, let's make sure it's true, and let's put it in context. And uh, the, in February, there was no discussion of the virus in this country. Yeah, just to close the loop on, on this, that, that's what I wanted to ask about, because you're saying uh, it was all about China, but it was a, what the president was saying was this was a uh, very dangerous, highly contagious virus. So was it not part of your thinking at the time, you know, holy shit, if it's in China, it could come to this country? And Yeah, uh, yeah and but then, no, no one was suggesting that at that point. Right. The point is, 10 days earlier, key meeting. January 28th, that's what they told him. It was coming to the United States. I did not know that in February, March, April, and learned it in May when I asked the president. I mean, we've released the tape on this where I asked him on May 6th, I believe, do you remember the National Security Advisor telling you this? And Trump said, uh, no, I, he doesn't remember, but twice he said, I'm sure it was said, I am sure it was said. But that's, see, you, you put pieces together. You guys know that. And you don't know all of the pieces when you start. But that's the obligation here. And to repeat, 
the demarcation line is getting this book out and the stories in it before the election so people can make their own decision. Oh, do I believe yeah. this? Is it relevant or not? I wanted to move on to a, another aspect of the book that I thought was fascinating. Uh, you know, we don't, the, the press doesn't talk about it as much, but it, it's the sort of very human dimension of this book. And really is the sort of the psychological and emotional toll of working for Donald Trump. And specifically, you write a lot about Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, um, who's unable to sleep at night, who's worried about his health seriously deteriorating because of Trump's, you know, the incessant tweeting, the drama. And then Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, who starts praying at the, the war memorial chapel of the National Cathedral uh, in Washington. Have, have you guys ever been in the National Cathedral? Yeah. Not, not I, I, yeah, service, have but just walked sure. in. I mean, it's like it clamps you around the neck that, wow, slow time down. What's going on here? Reflect on your responsibility. And here's the Secretary of Defense going to pray and reflect in private. This was never known because he worries, quite rightly, not that Trump is going to start a nuclear war with North Korea, but Trump has given Mattis the authority to shoot down a missile coming from North Korea toward the United States. And Mattis sleeps in his gym clothes, as you said. He has a light in the shower in case he's in the shower when they get an alert on this, uh, what they call a national event conference. And very top secret, but here it is laid out and you see his concern and, you know, what is he going to do? Because North Korea could start a nuclear war. They have all kinds of nuclear weapons. They're well concealed. They're, they're hidden. And suppose Mattis shoots down one missile coming to Seattle. What are the North Koreans going to do? Likely you're going to see a second launch and Mattis might have to go to President Trump and say, I recommend that we use our nuclear war plan to protect America because they are going to shoot at America many missiles or to our allies in Japan, our Japan or South Korea. So this is, I was going to, before the virus, I was going to start the book with this chapter because it's, I've, I found, uh, discovering this reporting uh, one of the, I mean, here is somebody like Mattis confronting the ultimate question, as I quote him saying, do I have a right, would I have a right to incinerate million, millions of people in a nuclear war? But Bob, there's also something eating at the souls of these of these men, Mattis um, and, and Coates. Uh, Mattis at one point talk, talks about this president being dangerous, about how they might have to take collective action. Uh, yes, by speaking out. This is not some sort of coup, but by going public with their distress. But they also discussed that it was Admiral McRaven who led the bin Laden raid and is one of the country's true heroes. And Admiral McRaven has spoken out and written columns and said things about Trump that, you know, that he, he's unworthy, he's unstable, he shouldn't be president. 
And then Mattis and Coates, the DNI, are talking about it and say, well, let's see, if we speak out, look at what happened to McRaven. No one really listened. No one cared. And of course, there is this fatalism among people who work or work for Trump. And I think in our business, in the media, oh, well, well this is doing these stories, doing these books is going to have no impact. I think that's BS. I think that Michael Isikoff knows this, the Bradley rule, which is you do your stories. Sometimes they have impact. Sometimes they don't. You can't tell which ones are, but it's nose down, ass up, moving slowly forward. And that we're not looking for political impact. Yes, we want our readers to believe us, but we stay away from the politics. And the, the night Nixon resigned, Michael, you weren't at the paper yet. You were probably in junior high school or whatever it was, <laughs> 1974. Yeah, I was in college. And Bradley's <laughs> running around saying, don't gloat, don't gloat. And, uh, you know, I've, that night, Bradley and I are going down to get some food in the cafeteria. Nixon had announced his resignation. We go to get on the elevator. It pops open and out comes Sergeant Shriver, who had headed the Peace Corps, was married to Eunice Shriver and uh, one of uh, John Kennedy's sister. And Ben knew Shriver from when he covered the Kennedy administration. And out comes Shriver and said, oh, Ben, oh, I wanted to be here at this moment for a celebration. And Ben was, was sick and just, just uh, you know, you know, no, no, go away. We are in the, we're not gloating. We're not having a party. This is what we do. Sometimes it has an impact. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, Michael, do you remember that whole attitude around the post? Of course, of course. There was never a uh, sense. The, the goal was never to have some defined political impact. Uh, it was to have impact and get people talking, but not necessarily for any political partisan purpose. But let me pick up on sure. one of the fascinating characters who Dan just mentioned in the book, and that's Dan Coates. And you report that he didn't have proof, but he suspected that the Russians had something on Trump and therefore may have compromised him. And he's the Director of National Intelligence. So I want to give you an analogy and have you react to this. Back in the day when you were my boss as the Metro editor of The Post, and I was at that point on the city desk, and I came into your office and said- And, we, and I called um, you a junkyard dog, is yeah, that fair? Yes, yes, you did. <laughs> yeah. yes, what you did, did that mean? And the junkyard dog is telling you that I've just interviewed a top aide to then- Mayor Marion Barry, and he doesn't have proof, but he suspects that the mayor is smoking crack. And uh, I said, I want to publish that story. And I know exactly what you would have said. You would have said, no, we're not going to publish it, but do the reporting, get the facts, 
and then come back to me. So I want to ask you, you've written two books now on Donald Trump's presidency. What does your reporting show? What is your judgment? Was Coates right? Did the Russians, do the Russians have something on Trump or not? That's a great question. Well, you wrote one of the uh, seminal books about this, Michael, and your suspicions run deep. Is that fair to say? Yes. And answer? Suspicions run deep. But also, I also believe that, you know, Trump's behavior can be explained in lots of different ways. He wanted to do business in Russia, so he flattered Putin. He didn't want the Russia hacking to undermine the legitimacy of his presidency, so he was stalwart. There are lots of ways to explain Trump's behavior, short of saying that they had something on him. So I'm asking you, what does your reporting show? What is your best judgment at this point? Well, it, it, I mean, Coates is, remember, Coates is, is not some Democratic, former Democratic senator. He was a Republican senator from Indiana for 16 years, a very close friend, of Mike Pence, the vice president. And Coates felt this suspicion like you but he had access to information that you didn't have of uh, the uh, deep cover right. human sources in Russia. And they combed through all of this. They looked at everything and they did not find proof or evidence of that. But as I report, Coates concluded that the suspicion still remained, but the evidence did not exist. And I spent some time trying to find evidence of it, and I could not. I, and so Coates and you and I kind of are at an impasse about all of this. And it's one of the questions, maybe history will answer, maybe it won't. Maybe it will just, there will be the book 40 years from now, Trump, Putin, and it will be question mark rather than answer. Yeah, I want to pick up on um, something you said before, which is this idea that, you know, have some people maybe suggest that the kind of reporting that we have been doing for all, all of these decades may not have the impact that it used to. You said that was uh, BS. I, I hope you're right about that, but I want to probe a little bit because sure. uh, it does it does feel like we we are living in an age that is so highly polarized that the truth is kind of facts, uh, the truth are kind of collateral damage on, on the, the battlefield of, of partisan wars. And I just, you know, one thing that struck me in the book was that Trump, I think you used the word unfazed, that you were interviewing him while impeachment was going on. You know, I think the House is, was debating articles of impeachment while you're interviewing him. You say he's unfazed. He did seem unfazed. And at the end of the day, that impeachment inquiry did not have a lot of impact on him. And the, you know, the one Republican voted uh, in the Senate for impeachment, uh, Mitt Romney. No, no so, for removal. For, for removal. For removal, yeah, for removal. Yeah. So make the case uh, that this kind of reporting today really still has an impact. What is that impact? How should people think about that? Well, uh, look, look at the impeachment case. I think the record shows that it was precipitous. They they had something that Trump clearly had done. In fact, in the book, I spend 20 minutes down in Mar-a-Lago with Trump interrogating him about 
the impeachment and what was in that transcript with the Ukrainian president and Trump was in Which, by the way, is the most denial. fascinating. That, that is the most fascinating exchange in the book. Your repeated efforts to get him to acknowledge that he was wrong and should apologize, which he absolutely refused to do. Well, well, not before apology. I just, I said, look at what the transcript shows. It shows that you asked that the president of Ukraine talk to the American attorney general and investigate the Bidens. And so I asked Trump, as a matter of policy, do you think it is an acceptable, desirable policy for the president of the United States to ask a foreign leader to investigate a political opponent? And Trump would just say, Stonewall, just say, no, it's about corruption. And I'd say, no, right here in the transcript, it says Biden, a political appointed, uh, opponent of yours, you want investigation. And he stonewalled and were yelling at each other, quite frankly. And uh, what struck me is instead of just throwing me, you know, out of Mar-a-Lago, he would let me go and go and go. And finally, I say, well, okay, what about apologizing? And I recalled that Nixon did not apologize. And I've always thought, and I think Carl Bernstein, my partner in Watergate, agreed pretty much with this. If Nixon had come out early and said, look, I'm the guy at the top. This was a mistake. It shouldn't have happened. I'm really sorry. Watergate would have gone away. And um, I don't know that you guys agree with that, but I think it's highly likely. So I was saying to Trump, uh, you know, get go ask uh, Ivanka, your daughter, go for a walk with her and uh, ask her. And he said, well, no matter what she said, it wouldn't make any difference. Which actually leads to my next question, Bob. How would you compare Donald Trump to Richard Nixon? See, I... I I don't, uh, you know, that's each, each president is different. As we know, the circumstances are different. Clearly, Nixon was a criminal president. The Republican Party turned on him and he voluntarily resigned. As we know from the Mueller investigation, they never established that there was sort of any sort of crime in dealing with Russia or in the obstruction of justice, this is debated, but look, uh, you know, I've read the report and talked to the people about it. And as Trump says about the Mueller investigation, it disappeared. It was like dust, he told me. Yeah. And But I was really, I, I, I was a, really talking psychologically, their personalities, because there do seem to be a number of parallels between well, Trump and it. Yeah. Yeah, but Trump, no one has found with the hard evidence of a crime. And absent that, and that's why the Mueller investigation, I mean, I'll quote Trump, it departed in dust. Bob, we're, we're uh, 40 some odd days away from the election on November 3rd. There's a lot of nervousness out there among some people about how Trump will respond if this election is very close, uh, questions about him already trying to undermine confidence um, in voting, um, talking about fraud with mail-in ballots. uh, Trying to undermine confidence. 
I mean, he succeeded yeah. in undermining yeah. right. confidence. <laughs> All of us in our business are going to have to wear seat belts and a shoulder harness because it is going to be quite likely, unfortunately, I just hope, I mean, Dan Coates, to his credit, has a great piece in the New York Times this morning saying, hey, look, uh, we need to appoint a congressional commission. We need to get our handle around the, the process here. But the process, as you know, is scattered. I watched the, on television recently the Michigan Secretary of State saying, well, under our law, we have 30 days after the election to count ballots. So, I mean, what do you do? Avoid the law and then there's a stack of uncounted ballots over there. We are running into a hurricane, a hailstorm, and a, and a tsunami all, all at the same time on this. God knows well, what's going to happen. Well, Bob, you you actually asked Trump the kind of nightmare scenario, the thing that people worry about. You know, I'm going to read from from the book here. Everyone keeps asking, suppose it's a close election, you ask him, and it's contested. What are you going to do? Everyone says Trump is going to stay in the White House if it's contested. Have you? And then he cuts you off and he says he doesn't want to want to comment on that. And obviously it's impossible to know. But after having had the opportunity to interview him, uh, over 18 interviews, nine hours, observing him for the last four years, thinking about him. Is is this a scenario that uh, that Americans have to take seriously, specifically the possi- possibility that Trump would resist leaving office as he is constitutionally required to do? Look, anything is possible. Absolutely anything is possible in Trump world. I think our business reporting, we need to just briefly touch on and Let's talk uh, about you that. guys have done um, such great stories. Uh, Danny, I remember you. I first learned the code word for the uh, Bush uh, wiretap program. A warrantless wiretap. Stellar, stellar, stellar win. win. I remember Bob, I'm so glad you remember my chair and saying he's got the he's got the secret code word. When you have the code word, you know you can. Uh, and I had never. FYI, that was, a, that was a sidebar to my cover story, but go ahead. <laughs> was it really? It should have been the cover yeah. story. <laughs> yeah, well, it was important. But yeah. we need to think about our business and things we cover and how we define. I, I don't like the term investigative reporting. I like the term in-depth reporting. All of it should be. But, for instance, CNN ran a terrific story yesterday or the day before about Trump always promising to propose or deliver a new health care plan for a year. And they just had quotes of, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It's never come. That is an important story. The tax cut that Trump passed, I know from my reporting, and I regret I couldn't do more for this book, that uh, we really need to pull apart that tax cut. And uh, Trump has convinced workers and you know, factory workers and supporters of him that it's good for them. I mean, you almost have to would go, go out and talk to these people with the whiteboard and do the calculation. But it's not good for the workers. It is good for people who already have money. And uh, 
collectively, and I put it right on my shoulder that I didn't get that story. No one got that story. That's an important story. So we need to broaden our, it's not just somebody stealing money or doing something illegal, but it's the failure of policy, the failure of uh, delivering on promises, and then going back, as they say in the CIA, walk the cat back and say, what really happened here on the tax cut? And I can think of all of that. This does lead to my last question, because we don't have much time left. But, you know, Trump has, I think it's fair to say, driven a lot of us crazy because he's such an unprecedented president who says so many preposterous, untrue things. The question is, how do you cover that? How, what is the, what's the media, how does the media thread the needle? You go into the Oval Office and you plunk down the tape recorder and (laughs) say, I want to know what you've done and what your thoughts are. And, you know, look, you can put all kinds of adjectives on his behavior. My, I agree with the editor of the Washington Post, Marty Barron, who's one really fills the shoes of Ben Ben Bradley in a very, very important way for our newspaper and for journalism. And as he said, we're not going to go to war, we're going to go to work. And we're going to go back and look at these things. And no one knows better than you people that it's a I mean, working on this book, I you you couldn't go knock on doors at night because of the virus. You get shot, so you had to call people at night. And I'm upstairs in my office, and all hours of the night. I mean, I stopped working at eleven o'clock, calling people, get their numbers, go through. Uh, I mean, you it's astonishing what you can do, and you get somebody at home at night, and you say look, I want to ask about this and so forth. And there, you, all of you know, people in this country are secret sharers in their belief in the First Amendment. And uh, even they will make admissions against interest that they want to help reporters generally. Often it's not the case, but it's amazing. And I've gone to people and you say, oh, you know, this person isn't going to talk, and they will. And so instead of, you know, worrying about Trump's behavior, we need to worry about our own behavior. I got one last observation and one last question, so we'll make it quick. I would say, and Isakoff and I were talking about this before, Mike asked the question, how do you cover Trump? How do you cover a president who prevaricates, some people say lies, And your book is in a way a tutorial, because as you are narrating through those interviews, you are fact-checking him. And I think we all need to be doing that. And and, and I'm, I'm pleased that a lot of reporters are doing that, but we need to continue doing it. The question is, and this may seem a little trite, but I love when I hear young people come to me and say they want to get into journalism, they want to do reporting. What is your advice to young people who may be skeptical that this is still a good a good trade to ply in today's world. It's the best job in the world. And uh, I teach a journalism seminar in college, and I have been able to go through with people who weren't sure they're going to be journalists and so forth. And 
they work for Time Magazine or The Atlantic or The Washington Post. One of my students, uh, uh, Isaac Stanley Becker, is a regular staff member of The Washington Post, a great reporter, somebody who digs, goes in, I mean, follow that byline. He really knows how to do things. And it's it we've got to bleach out the emotional reactions that we, we might be having to you know all oh, this isn't true that isn't true uh okay uh, but let's find out what is true and it, look no one knows better than you two that it takes time time against the problem you don't do it in an afternoon now i was blessed by having my wife Elsa, my assistants Evelyn and Steve Riley, and they would they would say to me, particularly Elsa, come to me and say, "Oh well, this is this section looks good, but you need to talk to these people and that person, and you're not really clear." And sometimes I give her a page. I mean, you you know, writing is hard, particularly for me. And it would have 250 words on it. And she would have 250 words of scribbles and modifications and edits on I should show you one of these. And I had to deal with this. And I'm going, you know, this is my wife, whom I adore and love. And I'm going, oh, well, how'd you think that section? Well, look at this. And I'm, it looks like one of these, uh, you know, Pollock drawings. <laughs> it's, Bob, it's this is encouraging so. for all of us who have uh, struggled with editors. Look, we could go on for another couple of hours. We're out of time. We could. But I really want to thank you. The book is Rage. I think it's your most revealing, eye-opening look at an American president since the final days. It is um has really amazing stuff. So thanks right. for joining and, us. And um, and next time you come on the podcast, we'll swap stories about being Isakoff's boss. <laughs> oh, you're his I boss. Know. I we have been his have boss. Twenty years. He's my years. boss. All... Is the way I put it. Yeah, <laughs> you are my boss. He's my boss. Illusion, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You think, I thought I was his boss. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, back when he was the junkyard dog, the junkyard dog phase. <laughs> he still and, is. Uh, he still is. He, but see, you love that. You love that. <laughs> Absolutely love it when you he have does, somebody, you know, the, the motto at the Washington Post is all good work is done in defiance of management. <laughs> So true. So true. Yeah. Okay. Right. Thanks, Thanks Bob. guys. Anytime. Yeah.